So we're in First uh, Peter chapter 2, which is page 850 if you're using one of our Bibles. If you need a Bible, we've got some on the communion tables throughout the room as well as on the bar. Page 850, 1 Peter chapter 2. And I just said it paints a picture of how we participate with Jesus in his mission. So unlike the rest of Nashville, I really enjoy a good cup of coffee. Now, obviously that's an exaggeration. If you've spent any amount of time in our city, you know that we have tons of coffee shops and people are like, I think maybe I've only been a coffee drinker for eight years, so I don't know if I've just been ignorant to it or not, but it seems like it's boomed in the last couple of years and different types of specialty coffee and different things. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I bet we have over 50 coffee shops in Nashville. People love coffee, so I thought I would share just a little bit about my journey with coffee. So when I moved to Nashville for school, um, I did not drink coffee. Um, just thought it smelled good, but that was kind of the, the end of our relationship, or I guess the beginning. Um, so I didn't enjoy coffee, but I had a roommate, Andy Pickle, who would make coffee every morning in a coffee pot, and I would smell it. It's like, that's great. But by the time we got to second semester, I was in a biology class that was early in the morning, and I was, staying, I was struggling to stay awake and to pay attention. I was like, well, maybe there's something to this coffee. I'm going to give it a shot. And so I asked Andy, can you brew a little bit more so that I can have some? He said, yeah. And so I decided if I'm going to drink coffee, I'm going to do it the real way, and I'm going to drink it black. And so I'm like just pouring down bad coffee, just like, I mean, whatever the cheapest stuff in the cheapest coffee pot, it just was not good. But I, I forced it down for about a month and enjoyed its effects. And then I really started to like coffee, started trying different things, going to different places, and really just started to like stoke my curiosity of what this could be. I would think that my interest blew up to a fascination when I started working at Ethos as an intern and then working there. Um, because if you know anything about our team, you know that we love coffee. And we have like nine or seven different ways to brew coffee in our office. And like that's not really an exaggeration. Um, so I remember when I started interning, somebody brought a French press and it's like, a French press, like this is a better way to brew coffee. And so we, we learned how to do it and we started making better cups of coffee. And then an AeroPress came in, which was like a better French press that makes a cleaner cup of coffee. And then we graduated and got a, a really nice grinder and a kettle and a coffee scale and then V60 pour over filters and cones. And we, we do uh, handcrafted coffee in our office. And we enjoyed that so much that we didn't stop there. We decided we didn't want to just drink good coffee at work, but we wanted to drink it at home. And so a lot of us have invested money to make coffee bars in our house. Like I literally have one in my kitchen with a grinder and a scale and a kettle and I make coffee every morning. It's like, I love it and, and trying out new things. And I would say this past Christmas, it took it to a whole nother level, is that I got a coffee roaster for Christmas. And so now I buy raw beans and cook them in a roaster and make my own coffee. And it was inspired by Brent Baldwin, who's somewhere over here, and just learning. And it's something that it's a, and it's an experiment. It's something that's exciting as I'm learning to create better and better coffee. And what, the reason I'm telling all this is because I think that this has something to do with our story today. Um, my love for coffee only grew and became a thing when I was surrounded by people who loved coffee and who invited me to participate with them. Like I got a, to learn how to use a French press and then different ways of coffee. I got to learn how to use a roaster. And when I have a question, I call Brent and say, how do you do this? And different things like that. It's a constant learning experience that's happened because I've been in community with people who are practicing that. And I think this is so important to 1 Peter 2, um, which is about how we participate with Jesus in his mission. So I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 10. It says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, 
so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so this text is just loaded theologically and also with just words that we don't use, to be honest. There's a lot of ideas and different things that really made a lot of sense to Peter and the people who was writing to, but are kind of disconnected from us. We're not going to be able to unpack everything in this text today, but I want to kind of point out what God has been stirring in my heart this week, and I think what, what it, and how it relates to us as ethos, how we participate with God on mission. So just simply, Peter, um, what you need to know about Peter is that he was a fisherman, and which probably meant that he wasn't super educated in that time period. He probably was a fisherman just because he, um, his dad did it and his grandfather did it, and so that was the trade he did. It was a, it was a hard line of work. When you brought fish home, you made money, and when you didn't, you didn't make money. And so he was fishing, and one day he was having a particularly rough night, and um, he came back into the shore, and Jesus is walking on the shore, and Jesus tells him, um, gives him a few instructions about how to catch fish, and he's like, okay, you know, we've been doing this all night, but it hasn't worked out. He does it, and he catches just a surplus of fish. And so he realizes there's something to this Jesus guy. Jesus invites him into a relationship with him, and he starts the next three years, just gave up everything he had, and he, and he followed Jesus. And as you read the scriptures, you get a front row seat to the drama that is Peter's life. Um, he has many ups and downs that are very well documented. You see him make really foolish mistakes or say things that don't make sense, and Jesus rebukes him, but he always finds a way to come back. So he's a guy who's well-versed in grace and walking with Jesus. So this is Peter. He's the guy writing this, and this is 30 years later after Jesus has died on a cross and resurrected and is in heaven with God. Peter is dedicated his life to being a pastor. He is loving people and he's sharing the gospel. And he wrote this letter to be passed out to churches. And he was writing to um, about several different churches that were in a span of about 300 miles in width in modern day Turkey. And he was literally handing this letter to a messenger who would take this letter to the different churches to encourage them. In the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their struggle, he was sharing these letters. So that's what the context of what's going on here. And I think chapter two's message is about how Jesus' church is hungry. I think it's also about how Jesus' church, church responds to Jesus and how Jesus' church is centered on Jesus. So those are the three things Peter's going to walk us through if we start in verse 1. It says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and a slander of every kind. So immediately Peter starts off with just like describing. Remember, he's writing to a group of people, so not an individual. He's saying, in your community, the first thing you need to do is you need to let these things go. 
And he, he starts talking about malice. To be honest, I had no idea what malice was until about five days ago when I started studying this. And malice literally means to ish, to ish no, to wish um, ill will upon somebody else. And so he said, this is destructive to community. Like this is not something that's, that's of the church. And he says, not just malice, but also deceit and hypocrisy, which are very similar to purposefully fool somebody or to put a better image of yourself so that people view you differently said, these are things that need to die in community. They're destructive. And then he moves on to envy, literally wanting something that somebody else has so badly that it's a detriment to a relationship. And then he ends with slander, which is participating in ruining somebody else's character or name or, or image in front of other people. And he starts off by saying, these are things that mark communities that are not of God. But of the people of God, you need to work on getting rid of these, which is pretty crazy to, uh, or not crazy, but it's pretty difficult. Because I don't know about you, but I've done all five of these things many times in my life. And some even recently, I've been a hypocrite or I have envied other people for things. And these are things that are tough to put to death, tough to get rid of. But I love that he doesn't stop there. He continues on and it kind of explains how this happens in verse two and three. He says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter gives us this analogy of, of children who are crying out in hunger. You know, I've never raised a child. I don't have any children. Um, I haven't even grown up around a lot of babies. I was the baby of my family, so I didn't really spend time with babies. But one thing I do know about them is that when they're hungry, they let you know about it. Like when they're craving milk, they cry out. All the mothers on Mother's Day are saying, yes, that's true. But it's like babies make noise, and they, they cry out for this nourishment. And Peter's saying, like, this is what it looks like to be the church. And he's not saying just new believers, which is what I've often read this as, but he's saying like every single person, know your need for God. Know that you cannot offer anything to God, but crave his spiritual nourishment. And he's like, this will help you grow up in your salvation. And you want to know how it will? Because he said, because you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Um, he said, when you've had an encounter with it, you know that there's something different. There's something different about God and there's something different about the destructive forces of community he's talking about in verse one. He's saying, so I was thinking about this. I was like, you don't need to tell me that Mexican food is good. Like I grew up in Houston, Texas, and I love Mexican food. And when it's an option to choose from, I'm always gonna choose it because I've tasted really good tacos and really good burritos and I will do what I can to have more. And so it's not something that I have to be reminded. He's like saying, like, no, as a Christian, you'll be very aware, as, as the church, be very aware of your need as a baby, cry out to God to receive nourishment. And it's a craving. I love that word. And I think when there's things in our life that we crave, we make sacrifices and changes and sometimes even do ridiculous things in order to meet that craving. Um, I think about in like dating relationships, when you are interested in a guy or girl that you're dating, sometimes you will do things that you never thought you would do just to impress somebody or to, to hang out with somebody. So maybe you had no interest in fine art ever in your life, but there's a girl that you're interested in. You will find yourself in a fine art museum, learning a lot about fine art, wearing nice clothes, and changing some things about yourself so that you can participate in a relationship with somebody. Think about in college. Um, some of us have um, chosen to say, hey, I'm willing because I believe a college degree is important or because I want to be a part of this community on this campus. I'm going to make uh, I'm going to press pause in some areas of my life, and I'm going to spend a ton of money. I'm going to maybe incur a lot of debt just because I believe that this degree is worth it. Like, it's something I crave. It's something I want. And I love he's just describing this relationship, this intimacy with God. Like, the church is hungry for more of God because they have an experience with God's goodness. 
they have an experience with God's grace and they, they know what the world has to offer and they see what Jesus does and they receive that and want more and more of that. So Jesus' church is hungry. He continues on in verses four through six and this is where we're gonna talk about how ch- Jesus' church responds to Jesus. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I love that Peter continues by saying, as you come to him. I love that it's not, hey, the first time you met Jesus, everything changed. It was as you keep coming back, God continues to work. I love that imagery. He said, as you keep coming back, and who are you coming back to? He describes him as the living stone. We're going to talk about stone in just a few moments, but the first word is living. It's very intentional. It's like describing that Jesus is alive. Like he, he died on a cross and he resurrected from the dead, like literally. And he's, he's in heaven with God and he is God. And like he is still intimately involved in what's going on in the world. And he says, you come to the living God crying out saying, I've got nothing to offer you. But this is the gospel as he keeps going on. He says, you also, in verse five, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. The language of being built, it's not something that, hey, you're completed as a spiritual house. You as the people of God, ethos has got it all together, like you're perfect as it is. And he's like, no, he's saying, like you are being built into something. There is a process going on. There's a fancy church word called sanctification that we use for this. And what sanctification means is essentially like when somebody comes to to Jesus, they have been justified before God. So when they have put their faith in God, they're good with God and relationship with him. But there's still a lot of work that Jesus needs to do in our lives as we become more and more like Jesus to participate with him on mission. This is the process of sanctification as we grow up in our salvation, as he says, or as we're being built into something we're not quite yet. And this, if you are a believer in here, you know that this is a process, like that we are still filled with so much brokenness and so much sin and destruction. And sometimes we find ourselves being envious and um, wishing ill will upon other people. And we come to Jesus, and we are being built into something that we're not quite there yet. But I love that it's not hard work and like white knuckling it out. He's saying like you, Jesus, as you come to him, you come as a child who has nothing to offer, but Jesus builds you into something that you're not yet, but he's gonna be with you on that journey. I love that. And he keeps describing this more. And he says, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. I think it's talking about something that I have a hard time understanding, the idea of priesthood. Um, but I think it's a beautiful image as I kind of unpacked it a little bit more this week because priests were known for two things in their culture. One, that they were known for, that they had special access to God, that they literally went before God to places where other people couldn't and they would offer sacrifices and lead people in worship from a place of being in special position and that they would, they would atone for sins through sacrifices and um, it's this crazy thing. So they did that, and they also took care of the poor and the marginalized, and they served. So kind of two roles. They would lead people in worship, and they would serve. And I love that he's talking to the church, and he's saying, you are a holy priesthood. Literally, like, everybody's in the game as the church. It's not just the, the paid professionals, but every single person is a priest. And this is, like, earth-shattering, and it's so opposite from our culture in a lot of ways. Like, the church operates different, differently than an NFL franchise does. So if you look at the Titans, the the Titans will draft players that are really skilled. They would pay them lots of money, sign them to a contract that they had to perform to. 
they would put them with coaches that know what they're doing and they would have managers that manage all the player personnel and all these setups. And so they would dedicate their lives to becoming professional football players. Like that's what they do. That's what they're paid to do. And then we go and watch them in the stadium as they perform. And what Peter's saying is like, it's different here in the church. It's like, we're not just coming and sitting in chairs and consuming sermons and singing songs, but we are getting, we are invited into the game to participate with Jesus in his mission as priests. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more in a little bit, but it's the idea that everybody in this room, that everybody who's a Christian is in the game with Jesus. And we continue on in verse seven. So we've talked about how the church is hungry and how the church responds to Jesus. And now we're talking about how the church is centered on Jesus. In verse seven, it says, now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock, a rock that makes them fall. And Peter gives us this image of a cornerstone, which the cornerstone was like the foundation of a house um, back in their days. This is what builders would spend the majority of their time doing is finding or crafting the perfect cornerstone, which was like a big stone that was literally on the corner of a building, on the foundation, and it would give the entire building its shape and its character. Like everything would butt up against this stone and get its support from this stone. This is the most crucial focal point of everything. And Peter's saying of the church, of the people of God, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the focus. He's the one. It's not about any individual. It's not about um, anything like that. It's like it is about Jesus. And he continues on. He said, for the church, this is great news for those of you who believe. And then he he follows it up in verse 8 by talking about how there's some people who, who do not believe yet. And he's saying, this is what you need to look to, though, is Jesus, because Jesus is the center of the church. And I think a lot of times for those of us on our journey, as we're trying to figure out, is, is Jesus real? Is following, his peop- or is following him worth it? And we look at the church, and sometimes we can get a pretty poor representation of Jesus because we're in process, like as the church. Sometimes the church, sometimes individual Christians are great examples of who Jesus is, and then we follow it up, and we sometimes the next day are terrible examples of who Jesus is. That, that is the process of becoming more like Christ. We are being built into something we are not yet. And what, what he's saying here is like, look at Jesus. Like, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one that you, you pay attention to. He's the one that we lean to. He's the one that we're getting our direction from. And he moves on in verse 9. He's talking again to the church, and he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, And a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And He just kind of unloads on them this like huge identity statement. He's like saying, You are a chosen people. That like God really likes you. He, he doesn't just love you. Like he likes you. He enjoys you. You are chosen. He said you are his special possession. And he's forming you into a holy priesthood to carry out his will. And, and he, here's how you do that. He says, you share your story of your redemption, or as he says, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's like the church realizes that it's not about me. It's not about my performance. It's not about you or your performance. It's about the Jesus, the cornerstone the one that gives us our shape. He's the one who has rescued us from our darkness, brought us into our light, not our good deeds. He's the one who gave us a people. He's the one who gave us his mercy. It is about Jesus. And like we get to realize that we're not just um, pastors anymore and we're not just teachers and we're not just 
um, builders. We're not just doctors. Like we are priests living out our calling in whatever community that we have. Like every single person's in the game. Like everybody. It's not, we're not just people that, that come and consume, but we are people that participate with Jesus in his mission. Like we are all called to get in the game because of what he's doing and who he's building and what he's doing. And so we use this language at open house. If you've ever been to one of our open houses, we say the statement, you are the church and you don't need permission to be who Jesus died for you to be. It's like a really, like a practical way just to say like, this is who you are. Like as the people of God, we have a mission to participate with Jesus in. And there's a thousand different ways this can unfold. And we're just gonna unpack a few First, we're just going to talk about like what this looks like for us as a family like and our church here on Sundays or Wednesdays or whenever we're gathered with the other people of Ethos. What does it look like to be a priest in our community? I think the most practical, tangible way of this is serving on a volunteer team. Um, like All these seats in this morning were set up by volunteers who got here at 7.30 who said, hey, I'm not just here just to, to be you know, a witness, but I'm here to, to be a priest. And like, so I'm gonna give up a couple Sunday mornings and I'm gonna set up chairs and I'm gonna set up communion. Some people do this on the tech team to create space where people can usher us into the presence of God. Or some people serve on the welcome team and can welcome people who are coming into an unfamiliar place. Or the same with the coffee team, that literally people are spending their time um, brewing coffee so that people in an unfamiliar place have something familiar to hold on to and feel like they belong. Like, those are all intentional things where people are saying, I'm gonna, not just going to be a consumer, but because of who Jesus is and what he's doing in me, I'm called to be a priest. And so I'm going to practically serve and give and, and do those things in certain ways. And that all happens because people, like going back to the coffee analogy from the beginning, that like, just like I didn't learn all those things on my own, but people invited me into that. I got to participate out of their joy and their overflow of inviting me into it. And so this is the same way that we do this with the church. So not just, and then also like house churches and different things like that, the way that we support each other. Like if you know anything about people, you know that people are broken and that people have very real needs. And it's like as, when you realize that you're a priest, you realize that it's not my job just to pass off needs to other people, but it's for me to figure out, hey, how does our community, so not just me individually, but how does our community meet this need? Like, how do we walk with people through broken, difficult situations that we all find ourselves in? Like, a kingdom of priests realized that, hey, at one point, I didn't belong. At one point, I was broken. But Jesus is working in me, and now it's my job to include other people and to walk with other people through their needs. That's what it looks like, maybe, in a few ways in the church. But thinking the language that we use of city or just when we're outside of the walls of, of church, what does this practically look like? Because the majority of your life is not spent in rooms like this, listening to sermons and um, worshiping in songs, the majority of your life is spent in, in the world with real people, with real needs. And there are many opportunities to do this. And so maybe as a student or as a, a uh, coworker, you realize that my job is not just to be an electrician anymore or not just to be whatever it is that you do, but you realize I'm a priest in my workplace. And so I think of two examples that are really close to me that um, I think about who do this really well, not perfectly, but do it really well. One is, is my wife, Molly, is a, a hairdresser. And I think she's a really good one. And I think she does a great job. But she realizes that her job is not just to, to make money and make people look good. Like, I think she does both of those things. But she realizes that her profession is more than that because she knows Jesus. She realizes that she has a unique opportunity with everybody who sits in a chair in front of her, like to, to get to know them, to, to love them, to find out their story, to to see if there's something that they need. And so sometimes when she's cutting their hair, she will literally, maybe not audibly, but just be praying in her spirit saying, hey God, is there something that this person needs? 
or you know, what is going on in her life. And God has prompted her to do different things in order to, to love the people that pass through her chair. And sometimes it's coworkers and it's like crazy things. And it's like, it's an opportunity just to realize that, hey, in where I'm at every day, where I spend the majority of my time, I'm called to be a priest because of who God is and what he's doing. And it's, a, it's an invitation and it's a joy for her to participate in that. I think about my dad who worked in a, a public school district in North Houston for 41 years. He just retired and he was a middle school science teacher and coach for a long time and a principal. And then the last 15 years or so, he was the director of transportation for our school district, which meant that he helped or he worked with the, like all the bus system um, in our school. And if you know anything about bus drivers, it's a pretty hard job. And it's something you don't get paid very well to do. And it's something that you don't really get a lot of thanks. And a lot of times you spent your, your time dealing with people who don't want to be on the bus and causing problems and different things like that. It's a pretty hard job. And my dad, like, one of the things that he always had as his focus is, like, my job is not just to make sure that the routes run well and that everything's safe and everybody gets to where they need to go because that is really important. And on paper, that's his job description. But he realized it's, it doesn't end there. It's like these are real people who have real needs, and I'm going to get to know them. And so he would plan, like, he would just get to know his drivers and, and love them and find out what their needs are. And when they were hurting, he would talk with them. And there were a couple times where maybe or where somebody and their family had passed away and they had financial needs. And my dad would rally up other drivers to either have like a, a meal or an event or something just to, to love the people that they're working with. And it, was, it wasn't done perfectly. It was never nothing super splashy, but it was always something that was just, it was like an attempt to say, hey, because I'm here, this is my job as a priest to walk with people and to be a present, a tangible presence of God. And there are in, in this room, there are thousands of different ways we can do this. But really, it's, a, it's an acknowledgement that my identity is that I'm somebody that is crying out to God who doesn't have anything to offer him. But as he works on me, I'm invited to participate with the church in serving our church and in serving our city. And it's kind of like the goal of today is we're talking through 1 Peter 2. I think it's a message that as the church, we are hungry for more of God. We respond to God's work in our life. And then we focus our lives and say that we realize that we are, we are priests focusing on who God is among the people around us. And so this morning, um, my message to Christians is keep coming to Jesus. Like, come as a newborn infant, trusting that you need more of God. Because we all do. We're all broken. Remember you're in process. Don't believe any of the lies of the enemy that you've, you've gone too far, you've sinned too much, you've hurt too many people that you can't come back to him. That is straight from the enemy. It's like the message here is like a newborn infant crave more of Jesus and come to him. Like, and just remember that like that is your identity. And like, there's no guilt or shame in this message. Please hear that it is come to Jesus as a child, longing for more of him. And then once you do that, he's gonna propel you to, to be a part of the game, like to, to join the team and to participate with him in mission. And I, I'm just gonna challenge you as you take communion this morning to think about what is one way that you can step into Jesus's mission, either in our church or in our city. Just practically, what is one thing that I can do? And for those of you who aren't believers, who are either skeptics or curious or wherever you are on the spectrum, wherever you are, know that you're so welcome here. Know that we are so broken, as Dave was talking about as we um, started this morning, that we are all in process. So we have probably hurt you at times and we have probably disappointed you at times. And that's because we are real broken people as well. We're in process to be formed and to who we are in Christ, but we are broken people. So my challenge to you is, or my ask of you is please forgive us in the times that we've harmed you, sinned against you, 
done those things. But then also, look at Jesus. Like, he's the cornerstone. He's the one that's directing this whole thing. He's the sufficient one. He's the one that has what we need. So my challenge is, if you're thinking about giving up or rejecting, just like look at Jesus Christ. Like he is who this thing is about. So we're going to take communion. And as we take communion, if you want to respond and you need prayer, um, we have a group of ordinary people that are going to be up here at the respond banner. And we would love just to pray with you. Um, These are people that are not perfect. We are all acknowledging that we're going to stand in the gap and just bring requests before God as, as, as priests. This is one way to practice it. And so we're going to be doing this this morning. If you have a hurt, if you have a question, if you have a need, or if you have something to celebrate or whatever it is, like there's no stigma attached to that. We're all going to stand up in just a moment. And it's a great place just to come before God and say, hey, I don't even know what this looks like, but I, I need prayer. So I'm going to invite you to do that. But so if you're taking communion, ask, what is one way that you can step into Jesus' mission in our city or in our church this week or come to respond at the respond banner? I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for being so approachable and so good. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for walking with us all the time, God. Will you just open up our eyes to see your true self? Will you um, enable us um, just to to see you, God, and to trust you? Uh, Move as you need to in this room. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.